and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Launching rockets into space used to be a big deal. A million people came to my hometown to watch the launch of Apollo 11. We watched as long as we could, and then we stood there, looking up a little longer, just in case we could catch one more glimpse, and then it was time to move on to whatever came next. Teaching team member David McNeely brings us this message entitled, Why Do You Stand Looking Into Heaven?, which covers Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Thank you for joining us today. Well, my guess is that you are probably somewhere in the same neighborhood that I am in terms of uh, what's going on in your heart, your mind. Um, I am still recovering from last week's Easter service. That was just a very special and a very unique. I've been around a lot of Easter services at Perimeter, been around a lot of Easter services in my lifetime. And uh, that one just for some reason for me, um, you may feel differently, but for me uh, was just extra special. There was a lot there. Uh, one of the things that was there, though, that I, I enjoyed so much um, was just listening to Randy humiliate himself. And as he shared that story, and and I'm listening, and it's the first time that I'd ever heard it for some reason. I'm sitting over here, and I'm listening, and every every time he got going, I I just kept thinking, please don't stop the story. Just just keep going. I just want to hear what happened, and I am laughing louder and louder as the service goes on, and I have a loud voice anyways. So I just thoroughly enjoyed it. Of all of his accomplishments, I'm just so excited that we can now say that our senior pastor is also an arsonist. I think, though, what made that story so profound was as as he got to the end, he talked about how this human who did not even know him extended to him this grace and mercy, the extravagant forgiveness. I mean, who does that? And it dawned on me as he shared the story. It takes me a little bit longer than it does you guys. You clue in quicker. But it dawned on me, man, the only way that this guy could have possibly had that reaction is because he had so many resources at his disposal. I mean, if that's my house, I assure you I'm not responding that way to him. (laughs) And yet this guy had all the means by which to just simply cover it. I've been dwelling on this thought. It's happened to me again this morning. That last song that we sang and the the last line there that I'm going to set my gaze on the face of Jesus It is this message that I have been fixated on, and Easter brought it about plain up in front and center, but I've been dwelling on this for a while now, this extravagant forgiveness that God offers. That yes, there was a time in my life in which I embraced it in the initial stages where I came to him with all of my junk, and I laid it before him and just spoke it openly and plainly and freely, was, was vulnerable with God. And what I, what I heard back in return from him, not through an audible voice, but that which was selling in my soul, was I heard him just say, I got it. And there have been times since then in my life in, in which I know how good he is, how gracious he is, how merciful he is, and yet I still choose to run this direction when he stands here just waiting to extend the same kindness, same grace, same mercy, and I keep running this way. And the scriptures tell me that Jesus then hops down and chases after my rear end until I finally get so tired 
tired and exhausted. I just fall down in a pile. And then he picks me up and he says, I got it. Why in the world would I not want everyone to hear this message? And yet what I find so often in my life is that I'm so slow to give away that which was intended to be given away. I tend to hold on to that which was designed and is best used when it is given away. I think we all do that. I think it's easiest for me to hang on when I know the best use of something is actually to freely give it away. I'm feeling it right now. My twins will turn 13 this week. And I know what God has called me to do. He's called me to invest into them and to love them along with the other four that are coming behind on that little train. And it comes a time in which I hand these kiddos over and they go. But I find myself wanting to hang on, but they were meant, they were designed. Best used when they're given away. Money that has been given to me. I know God has called me. It's best utilized when it is given away. And I find myself wanting to hang on to it. And the greatest message that has ever been given, I find that I am oftentimes so insanely selfish with. Why would I not want to get this in the hands of people? I know why. Because at the end of the day, I forget the central truth that it's not really about my power to do this. It's about his power to do it. In 1930, King George V was set to give an address at the London Arms Conference. CBS was covering it. And the radio broadcast was to go out before a large, large number of people all over this globe. And one of the CBS employees, right before the broadcast began, actually walked, tripped, dragged the cord, and the cord was severed, and it stopped the broadcast. Harold Vidian, one of the chief workers there, without thinking much at all about what it would do to him, knew what needed to happen. So he grabbed one end of the live wire with this hand and one end of the other one here in this hand, and he became the conduit by which the electricity flowed through his body. He endured the pain throughout the entire message. As the power went through, the message was broadcast to the whole world until the end. And then he let go exhausted. This is the picture of us. That the power of the almighty God is going out to a world. And he says, I want this message to be broadcast out. It is not a message of condemnation. It is a message of acceptance, of radical love and grace and mercy and forgiveness. And I want this message to go out. And he could do it through any way that he chose to do it. And he said, I want you guys to grab this end, grab a hold of the world. And my power will go through you, and you will simply just share. If you have your Bibles, open with me to Acts. Acts chapter 1. Acts is the third longest book in the New Testament, only behind Matthew and Luke. Luke is the author. Luke is a physician, but he's also a part-time historian, and still to this day, Historians marvel at his accuracy in what it is that he records. 
about 30% of the New Testament is covered simply by Luke, between the Gospel of Luke and in Acts. And the Gospel of Luke is that which is describing what it is that Jesus did while he was here on the earth. The, the book of Acts is going to describe what Jesus continues to do, but while he's seated on his throne in heaven and actually doing the work through people like you and me, his church. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. After he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. In my first book, I wrote to you, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began. The implication is clear that Jesus is still doing a work. It's just that he began it in one person confined to space. And the goal all along from the very beginning of time, from the moment God placed Adam and Eve into a garden, the goal was always the same. That the entirety of the globe, top, bottom, east, well, the whole thing was designed that the glory of God would cover the whole earth just as the waters cover the sea. And so Jesus, knowing what had happened in that garden, he was there. He saw it. When they chose to eat the fruit, knowing that horrible things happened to humanity, Jesus said, I'm going to make it right. And all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, there was even a promise that was given that somebody is coming to make this thing right. And Jesus came on the earth, and Luke writes about that. All that he began to do to turn things around, to once again put the order back in its place. We all know this is a broken world. I don't have to sell you on that. You don't have to be particularly religious or irreligious. You don't have to come from any particular culture. You know something is not right with the world that we live in now. And I am a major part of the problem. Because there's something radically wrong with me. The things that I want to do, I actually find that I don't do it. The very things that I hate doing, I find myself doing that on a regular basis. Something is wrong with me. Something is wrong with all of us. Something is wrong with the earth. And Jesus came to start the process of turning that all around. Now, he tells us, I want to tell you about how he's going to continue to do that. This is his introduction to this book of Acts, but as a quick summary and a quick recap, this is not all that we could talk about what Jesus did. But what Jesus did was two primary things. He came to die for us, and then he came to be raised again from the dead. He lived a perfect life. He lived a life that we should have lived and could not live. And then he went to a cross. Now, why did he do that? With all due apologies to uh, to John Piper, who wrote a book entitled 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die. I'm only going to give us four today why Jesus came to die. And then there's four reasons after that as to why it is that he was raised from the dead. Why did he die? At least four reasons. Number one, it is the price of sin. Genesis and Romans remind us of this. God said in the garden, eat the fruit, you will die. Spiritually, 
as well as physically. The spiritual death happened instantly. The physical death was held off for a little while. And later on, God says, about 80 years is the lifetime that somebody will have. And every single one of us will meet the same fate. Every single person will die until Jesus chooses to come back. I'm only aware of two that have not died. One that says walked with God and he was no longer and the other one was taken up in this whirlwind. Everyone else will meet the same fate because it is the price of sin and Jesus took on the price of sin. Number two, to die for his followers so that they could live. He came to actually die in our place so that when we die a physical death, we might be raised again to life. But so that we might live eternally in a spiritual sense. It will be a real body that we will have. That time will come in which we will be raised from the dead. Our physical bodies will meet our spirits. I don't know exactly how all that will occur, but we'll have a perfected body at that point, And we will live and live and live and live for all of eternity. If there's anyone here today who has some level of fear and trepidation over death, then you are human and you are normal because it was not a part of God's design. His design was that we would live forever and ever. And Jesus came to die so that we could live forever and ever. The third thing is he came to die so that he would bring his followers to God. How else would we get into the presence of God? How else would we stand before a holy God who has no sin, who tolerates no sin in his presence, no thought, word, deed, action, motive, anything? There's only one way that we could go into his presence, and that is somebody who did it right on our behalf would take us with him. We came to die so that he might bring his followers to God. And then finally he died to destroy Satan and free his followers from the fear of death. Not Satan's followers, but Christ's followers. He came to destroy the work of the devil and then to free the followers of Jesus from their fear of death. It is okay, according to the scriptures, to have a, a normal level of fear of death. But what happens for the believer? We actually no longer fear what's on the other side, do we? And the older you get, I'll bet you, the more you're looking forward to it. My father, who is now in his 70s, it's not morbid conversation. It's just conversation for him. Now in his 70s, says he thinks more about heaven now than he's ever thought about before. And when he and I talk about it from time to time, there's a little grin on his face. All of these years of faithfully walking with the Lord, I think he's looking finally to getting into the presence where he is no longer hindered by this flesh. He's no longer hindered by any sinful desire. He just wants to be in the presence of God. Death is actually a gateway for him. It's an entryway to finally go home. Those are four reasons why Jesus died Four reasons why Jesus was raised from the dead. Number one, to defeat sin. He overcame death and he mocked sin. He overcame the power and the penalty of sin by doing it all right, by receiving the price that we deserved. And then when he was raised again from the dead, sin had no longer any power. The second thing, very similar, to defeat death. Where, O oh, death, is your sting? 
Death can no longer hold all of those who are associated with Jesus. For those who come to him surrender the controls of their life over to Christ. Death no longer holds a mastery. We will die, but we will be raised again from the dead just as he was raised from the dead. Number three, to go back to the Father. He left the throne. He left that glory that he had. He came down here, took on skin, became one of us, just like us, tempted in every way that we have been tempted, overcoming it all. And there was that moment on the cross, you recall, when, when, when God actually turned his back on Jesus, when the full wrath of the Father came down on Jesus, he turned his back away, and there was for the first time in all of history separation between the Father and Son. And Jesus experienced the abandonment so that we wouldn't have to. And he's going back to the Father. He couldn't go back to the Father unless he was raised from the dead. And he's going to take us with him. And then finally, he came to reign in me. He came to rule my life. He didn't merely come to be a suggestion. He's not just merely a model for us to look at. He actually came to live his life in me and through me. To do for me what I could never do for myself. To do for a world what I could never do for a world. He is not merely interested in giving me some suggestions for living. What he's actually interested in is taking over me. To reign inside of me so that I live a life that others around me say, Wow, that ain't you. Theologians call this our union with Christ, that we are associated with him, that all that Jesus did is credited to us. But let me illustrate this for you real quick. What it's not merely just saying is that we get a free ride simply because of what Jesus was doing. It's actually even more than that. I've got a dear friend. This dear friend is a very successful, powerful, intelligent lawyer. He has several clients of his that happen to be professional athletes. I get to go with this guy from time to time to ball games. So everywhere that we go, his name is called out. And when his name is called out, powerful, influential, successful people will come around. They'll hug him. They'll shake his hands. They're excited about him being in their presence. And I get to come along right behind him and experience everything that he gets to experience. So I show up at a football game with him, and I am as far as from me to this communion table from these massive, pristine athletes called professional football players. And I've got my little phone out, and I'm taking pictures of them and walking along, and I, I'm, I'm, I really am. I'm like a four-year-old child again, just watching. You're awful, dude. <laughs> I'm carrying on conversation. I'm able to talk to Hall of Famers who are clients of his. I've got pictures with Hall of Fame football players that I was able to show my family, and my family won't even talk to me anymore. <laughs> when we go to a restaurant, one of the restaurants is, one of his clients is the owner of this restaurant. And so he will come out and talk with us. I could go on and on. Everywhere we go, not a single person ever mistakes me for this guy. <laughs> Nobody is ever saying, man, sure glad you're here, Dave. Come on in. They don't know my name. All they know is that I'm with him and therefore I get to experience the things that he has earned. It's actually not just simply that simple in the scriptures though. Listen to this. God actually looks down and he cannot distinguish between me and Jesus. 
It's not merely that I'm alongside of him. It's that actually Christ in me, the hope of glory, there's this mystery. He's in me, I'm in him. And when Jesus looks down, when God looks down, he doesn't see David any longer. He doesn't see the sinner. He doesn't see the selfish brat that I am. He sees Christ himself. And he says, come into my presence. This is the mystery of this union that we have with God, with Christ. Please do not misunderstand me. I'm not saying that the nature of Christ is somehow or another infused with mine. I'm, it's all alien to me. It's just as if I never had a single word, thought, deed, or motive that was contrary to God. And I get all the privileges that belong to Jesus. But it's only for those who have thrown their hands up in the air and surrendered the controls of their life over to him. Why would I not want to get this message into the hands of people who are so desperately searching for something in life that will be satisfying? And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. While they were staying with them, Jesus ordered them to wait. One of the dirtiest four-letter words in all of the English language. Wait. Will you marry me? Wait. Did I pass the test? Wait. Is it benign or malignant? Wait. The hardest thing for us to do is to wait, and Jesus says, wait. It's not going to be long. John baptized you with water, but I promise you what's coming. The Father is about to load you up with power, but you got to wait. My tendency oftentimes is to go when God has asked me to wait and then actually to wait when God has asked me to go. Wait. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. They had come together and they asked him, okay, we're waiting, but is now the time in which you're going to restore us to political power? Is now the time in which our party is going to finally take over and the right thing is going to be done? Is now the time in which we're going to rule from on high and all of the world will come and bow at the awesomeness of our nation? Jesus rebukes them here in, in a mild way. And I think what he's saying is you guys aren't thinking grand enough. You're thinking about yourself. 
And you're spending most of your time trying to fight against people that are out in the world. What I want you to see is that I want you to go fight for people. And this kingdom is going to expand. Don't get caught up in the times or places. Yeah, I'm going to come back. I'm going to rule actually here. Yes, you will have what you think in terms of there will be this government that will be established. It will be glorious. There will never be any sin. But don't worry about the times or the places of that. Go back to Jerusalem. Wait. And what's going to happen is you're going to receive power. The Holy Spirit is going to descend upon you. What was one man doing, what only one man could do, is now going to get disseminated. His power, his ingenuity, his mind, his anointing will be dispersed amongst all of you guys. And there won't be just one Christ that's living on the earth. There will be many little Christs that will now be living. You're going to have power. And, and what's that power for? According to all of the scriptures, the power would be to live out the life that God has called his people to live out. But here specifically what he's referring to is there will be power to be my witness. See, I have been consumed with this thought for the last several months. Even going back into the summer, I've been thinking desperately on this particular thought. I am 45 years old. I know most of you right now are shocked. You're thinking I was 25. <laughs> I've got this little spot right here that for two years my kids thought, I convinced them it's just paint. <laughs> 45 years old, I know that I am likely past the halfway point of my life. And I know that I've probably got less days on the earth than I've already had. And I know there's coming a day in which Jesus will return. The skies will rip open. It will be clear and abundant to all. No one will mistake it for anything other than it actually is. The scriptures tell us that every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we will spend all of our eternity in, in worship of the Almighty God. Our hearts focused on him, delighting in him. This flesh that we have will finally be stripped away. There will be nothing but love honor, respect, dignity that is given to all of those that are created in the image of God. There is nothing in heaven that we won't do except witness. I can do everything in heaven better than I'm doing it right now except witness. And how do I want to spend the remainder of my days? Do I want to spend the remainder of my days holding on to that which was intended to be given away? Or do I want to freely give? He says it's going to be in Jerusalem and then in Judea and Samaria and then it's going to go all to the uttermost parts of the earth. There's no doubt in my mind he has geography in here. He's, he's thinking about physical locations, but I think an appropriate application of this would be us to think of it in these terms. Jerusalem really is like our family. 
those that we know and love, those that have seen us from the earliest of our days. These are siblings. These are parents. These are children. These are cousins. Those that we have walked with life the longest. And I would also say those that are nearest and dearest to our hearts. This is an obsession of mine as I think about my six boys. And when I just simply do the math, I know the odds are that there's likely at least one of them will at some point choose to walk away from the faith. And when I let myself go down that road of thinking about that, it becomes oppressive. And then I think about this task of what it is that God has given to me that I need to live out my faith in the face of my kids. And I think about the the instructions that are given in Deuteronomy. And how we're to simply just talk about these things as we walk, as we lie down, et cetera. And I, I think about all the pressure that's on me as a parent to get it right, to live the life so that my kids will look up and they'll see all of the goodness there and they'll just fall on their knees and say, oh God, you're so good because the way dad's living. Then Jesus says, I'll give you power. It's never been about how right you get it. It's about my power to minister effectively to your home. I I got them. I had you. I can get them. Have you been praying for a sibling for years? You've been praying for a parent for a long time? If you got a child right now that is wandering, if you got a spouse, that you have hit your knees for every single day. Be reminded. Jesus will give you power. Judea, I think, is our friends, those that we walk alongside of life with, those that we work with, those that we play with, those that we interact with, those that also know us. I think we move that message out in that way. And then I think their eyeballs had to pop out of their head when he said, and by the way, in Samaria, you're going to be my witness. I'm sorry, our enemies. Those who hold on to other religions, do you know how hard it's going to be for them to embrace this message that is so unlike any other message that's out there? They have been well-schooled and trained in their doctrine that it's all about what they do in order to get to you. Do you know how hard that's going to be to to be an effective witness? Yes, I do, and I'll give you power. And then he says, all the way to the ends of the earth, which is the ends of the earth. As far as the east and the west, the north and the south, the poles, all of it, this message will go out And it will go out in power because people will simply talk about it. My guess is that we are oftentimes fearful of just messing it up. That I'll say something that will sound wrong. I'll say something that will make someone more confused. I'll ask a question that I can't answer. I think we're just fearful. God says, I got you. I'm giving you power just simply to tell your story. Please hear this. You don't have to know a whole lot to be a powerful witness. All you have to do is to share what it is that Christ has done on your behalf. Some of my favorite memories are going back into AA as I entered alcohol rehabilitation as a senior in high school. And beating my brains in, trying to get sober, trying to get sober, trying to get sober, couldn't do it, fail, 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 fail. And then my sponsor introduced me to Jesus. 
having an atheist philosophy professor challenge the thoughts that I just went, it's all true. And then God doing something in me that I simply can't take credit for. And then walking back into AA and trying to find everyone that I can and say, hey, there is freedom that is available through Jesus Christ, the greater power as I understand him. I was not seminary trained. I was not a particularly good theologian. I just wouldn't shut up about what Jesus had done for me. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you in heaven, into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus is talking with them, and while he's talking with them, the dude starts rising up out of the ground, David Copperfield style, with no trick cameras, no mirrors, nothing. He just starts rising up out of the ground, and the disciples did exactly what we would do. What is happening? Five times in this passage, it tells us they, they had some sort of vision that they were looking at. And it talks about seeing and et cetera. And, and they are there. And then it tells us that Jesus goes beyond the clouds. The clouds cover him up. And he's there no longer. And they're still staring. And a guy comes over here. And a guy comes over here. And they're dressed in white. Men of Galilee. Why do you stand here staring into heaven? Scripture doesn't record it, but my guess is they said, oh, no. <laughs> Two powerful questions in this passage. One question was, is now the time you're going to restore the kingdom? And the other question is, why do you stand here looking into heaven? Both of them put on display very powerful truths for us to grab a hold of. John Stott is a wonderful theologian who has written many great things. He said this. I want to just draw your attention as he was talking about this particular passage. It was earth, not the sky, which was to be their preoccupation. Their calling was to be witnesses, not stargazers. The vision they were to cultivate was not upwards in nostalgia to the heaven which had received Jesus, but outwards in compassion to a lost world which needed him. It is the same for us. He goes on to say, I think we may say that the apostles committed two opposite errors which both had to be corrected. First, they were hoping for political power, the restoration of the kingdom to Israel. Secondly, they were gazing up in the sky, preoccupied with the heavenly Jesus, and both were false fantasies. The first is the error of the politicist, who dreams of establishing utopia on earth. The second is the error of the pietist, who dreams only of heavenly bliss. The first vision is too earthy, and the second is too heavenly. What we are called to is to look. 
but not to get caught up in looking. There are three ways, I think, three primary ways that we get caught still to this day staring into the sky, which I would caution us against. The first one is that we reject mystery. The passage tells us that Jesus was telling, don't get caught up in times and places. And I think that we still, to this day, do this. We get caught up in when exactly is Jesus going to return. I'm not saying don't study it. I'm not saying don't look into it. I'm saying don't get caught up in it. All God tells us is, I'm coming back. And I come back when I come back. In the meantime, go. The second thing that I think we do when we get caught standing, looking into heaven, is that we misunderstand worship. We think that this right here is the goal for us. There's nothing wrong with still reeling from an Easter service the week previous. There's nothing wrong with still reeling from words that were sung. I think we misunderstand the purpose of worship and we take it internal. We make it about us. When worship is God's design for a whole globe, people's hearts are not rightly centered until it's centered on worshiping the right thing. We all will worship something. In Alabama, it's football. In North Carolina, it's basketball. We all are drawn towards something because that's the direction of our hearts. And God says, I want the whole world to worship me because there is the place you will finally find what it is that you're looking for. Fritz Kreisler is a great violinist from many years ago. He made quite a good living playing the violin. He was so generous though that he gave away large sums of money and did not have in savings what it is that he probably could have had had he not been so generous. He would travel the world. And on one particular trip he took, he found this unique and rare violin. Desiring to purchase it, he went to the seller. He did not have enough money at the time. He went back to his home, gathered the funds that were necessary, and came to purchase this violin from the seller. The seller had said, I actually sold it to a collector. He went to the collector's place, offered to buy it. The collector said, it's my most prized possession. I won't part with it. A dialogue took place. He was unable to convince the collector to part with this violin until he finally had one last idea. He said, would you mind if I played it one time? He handed over the violin. Chrysler played this virtuoso that was so stirring and so moving that the collector then responded with this, I have no right to keep it to myself. You take it and play it for the world. We have no right to keep it to ourselves. God says, go and play it for the world. The last way I think that we stand staring into the sky is that we oftentimes get caught in it in just a defensive posture. Meaning that we are trying to just resist what it is that the world would do. We're trying to shield, and there's nothing wrong with doing that. We have to do that from time to time. We should be living at moments in a defensive posture. But I think the weight of the scripture says that we as the church, God's people, little Christ's anointed, empowered, would actually go live life in the love offensive Jesus goes so far as to say that you guys will be an offensive battering ram and not even the gates of hell will be able to prevail against you. Not that we would browbeat people, 
Not that we would strong arm them into living moral lives, that we would go on the love offensive to tell them about this extravagant grace and mercy and forgiveness that God offers them. Entrepreneur Jim Ron had this to say. We go the direction we face. We face the direction we design. Direction determines destination. When our direction is this way to the world, we probably won't be effective. But when our direction is this way to the world, there is power in his witness. I close with just simply this. In 1988, there was an earthquake that hit Armenia. Gorbachev reached out to the United States for relief, even though the Cold War was happening at that time. And many Americans responded by doing so, by going over there, by giving up hours, work, etc., to go and to be a part of the relief efforts that were there. Most of the survivors were found within the first 24 hours. That was December of 1988, early in the month. Later in the month, President Reagan would actually give a speech in which he would encourage those who were over there and going and thanking them because they showed that every life has precious value. There was a particular father there in Armenia whose son was not found after day one or two or three or four or even five. And many of the rescue workers begged him to cease his search for his son. But he would not give up because it was his son. Seeing a wall board, he removed it and found an open hole in there, and he called out his son's name into the space. And outward came the voices of several small children, but one of the voices he recognized in a weak and feeble manner, but it said, Daddy, you've come. I thought you had given up. Perimeter. I am begging us as a people. I don't know where God would call us to go. I don't know how he would have us to do this, but I am begging us as a people to go. Because I don't want to hear someone say, I thought you had given up. He will pursue through you give you power. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for what it is that you did on our behalf. You did not give up in coming after us. And so, God, I pray today that you would do a work so deep and significant in us as a people that we would just follow you as you make your way into a world. Lord, would you give us the power that you have promised to be witnesses to you, not that our name might be great, but that you may be seen as you really are, the lover of our souls. Thank you for being so good, so gracious, so kind, and so merciful to us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day. Thank you.